I told the last hour, every time I hear that song, I go back to the first time I heard it. Uh, I learned it at a, at a, on a mission trip to New York City. I was in the New York School of Urban Ministry there in, in uh, Brooklyn. And there are about 150 people packed into a room about a third this size. And uh, it, we had just a blast. I, God, God's presence was there. And every time I, I sing it, I go back to, to New York City. So I appreciate, appreciate singing that this morning. I also told the, the first service that I know what a 6-8 song is because um, if you come, you, one morning, you should just come early when we practice and we have a good time. And Phil said, everything we're doing today is fast. And Alex said, include the sermon. And so I said, that's right. That's right. So you can take him. I'm done today. I'll, I'll take him. No, <laughs> uh, no we, we have a good time. And, and uh, thank you all for leading us in worship this morning through song. Uh, this this fall, we've kind of had one theme, one kind of thread uh, in, in all of the sermons, in all of the series that we've done. And it's this. What do you do when life seems out of control? When things are going poorly and, and life seems out of control. And this is going to be our third series that we've kind of had that thread through it. And we're going to put a capstone on it, kind of tie a ribbon on that in, in this series. Now, having said that, I understand when Thanksgiving gets here and the fall is over, your difficulties are not going away just because Thanksgiving shows up. I'm fully aware of that. But I'm hoping with this series, as we kind of tie a ribbon on, on this, that you would have the understanding, the biblical knowledge to be able to use to apply in your life. And so that's kind of the thing that we've been working with throughout the, throughout the fall, and that's going to be the thing that we continue with in this series before we, we kick off our Christmas series here in about a month. Back in 2011, my brother and his wife, Christina, were missionaries in Thailand, and they were transitioning back to the United States. And they had a couple weeks there that, that they didn't have anything that they had to do. The responsibilities were done in Thailand. They didn't have to be back to the U.S. yet. And so they decided that they were going to climb to the base camp of Mount Everest with my brother's father-in-law. So my sister-in-law's dad. Christina's dad. So they left Thailand. They met Mark. Mark, is that right? I think that's right. Mark, I know him well. Goodness, I'm sorry. Uh, my brother-in-law, let, I'm, I'm sorry? Gary, that's it. I made up the name last hour. It was Mark. We went, we went with that. Thank you, Mary Jo. Gary, and I may say Mark, and you know how I'm talking about. But anyway. So Gary, I mean, I don't know where... Just kind of an aside, if, if I don't know somebody's name, I have a tendency to just make up a name and go with them. <laughs> so if I'm ever talking to you and I'm like, hey, Bill, and you're like, it's Michael, I, I just go with it. <laughs> so anyway, Gary. Jeremy, Christina, and Gary. Gary it is. Uh, me in Nepal, and Kathmandu, Nepal. And uh, they decide they're going to go, they're going to climb uh, base camp of Mount Everest. Now, I, whenever Jeremy told me that he was going to do this, I thought, you're just going to the base camp? Come on, man. I, I found out that it's over 16,500 feet above sea level. To give you something to compare it to, Pikes Peak is just over 14,000. So we're talking a mile higher than Pikes Peak if you've ever driven by or around that mountain. Way, way up there. 16,000, over 16,500 feet above sea level. So, Jeremy, Christina, leave. Thailand, Gary leaves Colorado Springs, and they fly and they meet in Kathmandu, Nepal. 
you, you have to take a flight from Kathmandu to Mount Everest. They had to wait a couple days. They lost a couple days of, of hiking time because the weather was bad uh, in one of the two places. And, and weather has to be nice. I didn't know this at the time, but uh, the, the uh, airport on Mount Everest is the most dangerous airport in the world. The reason is, on one end of the runway, you have Mount Everest. The other end of the runway, you have a cliff that is Mount Everest. And so it's the most dangerous airport run- runway in the world. I mean, you have a, something you're going to run into, something you're going to fall off of on each side, each end of the runway. They decided it was still worth it. I would have been enough for me to be done with that idea. But they decided it was still worth it. They flew in to, uh, to Mount Everest. No problems. Got there. Hiked up to the base camp. Or at least Christina and her dad did. About a day away, day and a half away, Jeremy said, my headache hurts too bad. Turning around and going back. I probably would have done the same, knowing how high that is. He, he went back down to the airport, uh, the, the town where the airport is, and waited for them the uh, day and a half or so until they got back. They got back on an airplane. It was another day. They, they lost another day. Uh, got back on an airplane. Took off. Backed that airplane up right against the mountain. And then took off down the runway and then got to the air. No problems at all for the first two, three minutes. Of their flight. After about two or three minutes, Jeremy said they heard something. He doesn't know what it was exactly. He still doesn't know what it was. Heard something loud, at which point the plane turned hard to the left and began to nosedive. So bad that the only flight attendant on the flight, it was a small airplane, the only flight attendant on the flight laid out and hit the ceiling and stayed there. That's how much of a bank, how hard the bank was and, and the dive was of the airplane. Eventually, the, air, the pilot pulled it out of there. And my brother said, I'm glad I wasn't in the front because there was a mountain right in front of them. So they pulled out and then turned off, banked off to, continued their bank off to the left to avoid the mountain and avoid hitting the mountain. Um, pilot got him out, pulled him out of the nosedive and saved the airplane. My brother, on his, on his uh, phone camera, turns around and he has Gary, uh, in, who was in the very back, in the middle of the, of the airplane, the middle uh, of the aisle in the back, up against the, the back of the airplane. Turns around and films and said, did you think we were going down or did you think we were in trouble? He said, we all thought we were going down. In the last few months, the last few weeks, that's exactly what we've been talking about in life. What do you do when life banks hard to the left and begins to nosedive? What do you do when there's nothing you can do? And life banks hard to the left and begins to nosedive. And so this, these next few weeks, we're going to try and, and wrap it up by looking at This idea of joy, that in our lives as believers, as, excuse me, followers of Christ, we can have a joy that doesn't make sense to the world around us. Even when our life feels like that same airplane, plane ride my brother was on just a few short years ago. So if you have your Bible, we're going to kick it off in 
Philippians chapter 4. We've been in this book a lot because it makes sense of the nonsensical. It, it makes sense of what God's up to when it seems like life's out of control. And so, Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4 here in just a second, but let me set the scene. If you've been here for a while, you've already, you know exactly what's going on in, in this setting. But if you haven't, Paul is a church planter. He planted a church in Philippi, uh, which was in modern day uh, Europe. He was from down in Jer- the Jerusalem area, actually Antioch, but um, or, or, uh, yeah, down, yeah, down around Israel, south of Europe. But he, uh, he had traveled up there and began planting churches there in, in what is modern-day Europe. One of the first churches he planted was in Philippi. Plant a church, move on. Plant another church, move on. That's exactly what he did. And, and eventually he, de- he decided he needed to go back to Jerusalem. But he was given um, some guidance, given some instruction to not do that. Because people were out to stop Paul and the gospel message that he was circulating, that he was telling the world about. Basically what Paul was saying was you can have a relationship with the Jewish God, the God of this universe, but you don't have to convert to Judaism. You don't have to take the the, uh, dietary laws, you don't have to obey the dietary laws, you don't have to practice circumcision, you don't have to do all the ritual things that Judaism uh, demands but you can still have a relationship with the God of the Jews. The Jewish leaders despise Paul for this, as you can imagine. And so Paul was told, don't come back to Jerusalem or to the temple because those leaders, those Jewish leaders are have it out for you. Well, Paul decided that he was not going to listen to that advice and to that counsel. He went back to Jerusalem, back to the temple anyway. When he was there... The Jewish leaders saw him, called for action, and a mob came in and attacked Paul right there in the temple. They drug him out and began to beat him even unto death outside of the temple. Well, the Roman guards, the the police of that day, find out what's going on, go in. They arrest Paul really to save his life. Pull him out. Paul's life is spared. When he's in prison or when he's he's captured, he tells one of the, the officials something that they didn't expect. He said, not only am I a Jew, but I'm also a Roman citizen. With being a a citizen of Rome comes special rights, special laws that do not pertain to those who are not citizens of Rome. So they decide to take Paul, send him back to Rome for trial because of his citizenship. On the way back, they put him on a boat to cross the Mediterranean to to head and, and to arrive in Rome. On that boat, uh, they, they are lost at sea. They're, they're lost for over two weeks at sea. They eventually shipwreck. For an additional three months, Paul and the people on that boat are shipwrecked until they finally arrive back at Rome, and Paul is put under house arrest. He spends the next two years in house arrest. It's a long trip for a trial. But that's exactly what happens to Paul as he awaits trial, and during those two years under house arrest, he writes the words that we're about to read. The reason that it's important to give you that background is if I were to stand up here and share with this, uh, share this information with you as if it were coming from myself, you would say, 
I understand, Scott, what you're trying to say, but you simply do not live in reality. You don't know my life, and you don't know what's going on. And the truth of the matter is, it is that's right. I don't know where you are. But Paul, God uses Paul in the circumstances of his life as an instrument to share with us this truth. And based on his background, it rings true, even in our lives 2,000 years later. And here's what Paul has to say. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. In every situation. In every circumstance. When things are going good. When things are going bad. When life dips to the left and begins to nosedive. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Rejoice in the Lord always. Let me say it again. Rejoice. Now this is a command. We probably have never seen it or or understood it as a command, but it is a command from God Himself. Most of the time, when we hear commands, it's, it's to stop doing or not to do the negative. So don't steal. Don't kill. Don't lie. And we hear that and we're like, okay, I can, I can, I can not do that. I won't do that. I'll take that as a command. But this is no less of a command if you know Christ this morning. If you have a relationship with Jesus, if you have been redeemed by his blood, this is a command for you today. Rejoice. In every circumstance, every situation, if you've been shipwrecked, if you've been lost at sea, under arrest for two years for a crime you did not even commit. Rejoice, Paul says. In every circumstance, in every situation. This is something we don't usually confront people about. But it's a command just like any other, and I think we should. I mean, you know people, nobody in here, I know people. You come around the corner and you don't ask them how the day's going. You say, you ask them what happened today. Or you're screening through uh, Facebook on the news feed and you're like, well, that's about par for the course for them. Because they always have something they're, they're griping about, complaining about, not joyful about. When there's people in your life that know Christ, I would challenge you. I challenge myself to confront it. When we're not joyful, we're not rejoicing in every situation, no matter what life brings to us. The Bible says that we're not living in a way that glorifies Christ. This, this command, not only is it, is it a command, but it's a unique command. Nowhere else in the scriptures that I can find does it say, rejoice in the Lord always, I'll say it again, rejoice. Or, don't murder all the time. Let me tell you again, don't murder. Or don't lie all the time. Let me remind you, do not lie. Nowhere else in Scripture does a command look like this. Is it framed like this? Because it doesn't seem like a command to us. Scott Smith rejoice all the time in every circumstance, in every situation. Let me remind you, rejoice. And he continues in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I love that. 
I've read this verse hundreds of times probably. It, it, this, this section of verses. And I, it, this, this sentence, this verse itself has never jumped out to me like it did this week. But the Bible tells us to be known for our reasonableness. Whenever in the past, when I've been looking for jobs, when I've interviewed at churches and stuff in the past, one of the things I would always ask people on the staff is tell me about my boss, my, my, who, who could potentially be my boss. The number one thing that I've ever heard somebody say, the number one compliment was he is a reasonable man. He's a reasonable man. He's a reasonable boss. She's a reasonable wife. She's a reasonable mom. He's a reasonable co-worker. He, it's not that he doesn't fly, uh, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't disproportionately fly off the handle to make a scene. His, his response is in line with the situation. He's a reasonable man. Her response is, is in line with the circumstances. She's a reasonable lady. And the Bible tells us as believers, as followers of Christ, that we're to, to let our reasonableness, our, 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 our response to situations be according to God's word and God's will. We get mad at things that, that are unrighteous. We get upset at things that are, that are, are not glorified to Christ. But it, it's in a reasonable way. So people look at our lives. They look at our, our leadership. They look at our subordinates and they say, that's a reasonable person. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And here's how you do it. Here's how you rejoice always. This is how your reasonableness is known to everyone who you come in contact with. Because the Lord is at hand. And what that means is this. The Lord is near. The Lord is is near. You know Christ? You sit down in the doctor's office and he says, Cancer, you can rejoice. Because even though I'm going to face it, the Lord is near. You show up to your boss's office. He says, your job, your employment is done here. You can rejoice in the Lord because God is near. You get life, banks to the left and begins to take a nosedive. You can rejoice. Why? Because the Lord is near. And not only that, but Paul is also uh, uh, pointing to the fact that not only is God near currently, but in the very near future, in the very near future, He is going to be near in a very real way when He comes to this earth and He rules and He reigns perfectly over you and over me, over people who have acknowledged His deity and those who have not. God's rule and His reign is near. And so Paul tells us that we can rejoice in every circumstance, in every situation. Our reasonableness can be known to all people. Why? Because God is near. If you know Christ this morning. He continues in verse 6. Do not, because God is near... Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That do not anxious, I love that. 
Don't be anxious about anything. Basically, what God is saying is, when we're anxious, back up. When we're anxious, what we're saying is, God, you don't have the power to control this situation. You cannot be trusted with this situation. This is too big for you. And God is telling us through Paul, don't be anxious about anything. Instead, take those prayers, take those petitions, take those requests, and set them at the feet of God. Don't be anxious about anything. Instead, bring your request to God and leave them there. Leave them at His feet. We have a, a six-year-old who has antennas for ears. It, it's so bad he's probably listening to what I'm saying right now. And when we're in our Tahoe, he'll sit in the very back seat, and Mary Jo and I will be talking uh, about uh, uh, just adult things, like paying the bills, how much the car is going to cost to get fixed, just things that you talk about in your in your family as well, with a friend or, or with parents, somebody you, you have these conversations with. And Mary Jo and I have these regularly. And Grace will be in the back, and he will um, he'll, he'll say, what are y'all talking about? What are you talking about? He, he, he can tell there's anxiousness, there's worry, worrying in my voice probably. And he just says, Scott, or Dad, what are you talking about? <laughs> probably says that too. <laughs> Dad, what are you talking about up there? And Mary Jo and I, and I now have, have a saying. Whenever we're talking about those things and he kind of wants to know what's going on, we'll always say, worry about six-year-old things. Now, this morning in the first service, I realized telling him to worry about six-year-old things is probably not the best <laughs> advice, but to deal with six-year-old things. Handle six-year-old issues. Don't worry about adult issues right now. And that's exactly what God is telling us in this verse. Would you stop trying to control what you cannot control? And handle your business, Scott. And I'm going to be there. I'm near you. I'm going to walk beside you as you're handling your business. But why are you going to worry about things that you have no control over? Why are you going to worry about the weather? That's my deal. Why are you going to worry about the cancer? That's my deal. Why are you going to worry about... Things that you have no control over. Don't be anxious about things that you can't control. Deal with six-year-old issues. Let me deal with the issues that only I have the power over anyway. And do that. How do you do that? Through prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving. Set your requests at God's feet. This week as I was studying, I came across uh, an analogy that, that uh, Francis Chan used. And I thought it was a good one. He said, he said this. As a boss, there are some people that when he asks them to do things, he knows it's going to get done. He I mean, he tells them, he doesn't think about it anymore. There's other people that, that he asks uh, them to do some things. And he believes it's going to get done, but he verifies. So trust but verify and then there are other people he asks to do things, and he's like, and he, this is him talking, and I just wasted my breath. I should have just done it myself. It's not going to ever get done. And he took that analogy as a boss, and he said, 
When we bring our request to God and we, and we pray, but then we, we say amen and we leave that time of prayer and we still hold on, and we're still anxious and we still worry. It's just like the boss who says, you can't be trusted. I need to do it myself. And when we carry that anxiety, after laying it down at Jesus' feet, we decide we need to pick it back up. We're saying, God, God of the universe, this issue, you can't be trusted with. I'm going to have to deal with it myself. I've had the audacity to do that to the God of the universe. God, you cannot be trusted. I'm going to have to hold on to this. I need to be anxious about this. I have to worry about this a little bit longer. Because you, God, cannot be trusted. And that's exactly what we do when we're anxious. Or when we lay it at his feet and decide we've got to pick it back up. God can be trusted. We can take our petitions. We can take our requests. We can lay them at his feet and trust that he will answer them in a way that glorifies himself. And it's ultimately for our good. He does it in there. Last verse that we're going to look at in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Think about the peace of God for a second. Remember, God knows everything and has power, control over all circumstances and situations. Not only does he remember what creation was like, but he is there right now. He is outside of time. He is not bound by time. So he is at creation right this second. He is at the throne whenever he rules and he reigns victoriously over all things. He is there right now. The Constitution being signed, he is there right now. He is all places. He is at in all places, at all times. He is not bound by anything. And not only is that his reality, he has control over all of those circumstances and situations as well. If that was your reality, how much peace would you have? You control the circumstances, you control the situations, and you are there all the time. Every second of every single day, Jesus and the Godhead are in those places all the time. Time does not even control him. If that's your reality, you're going to have a lot of peace. Your peace will be perfect. And the Bible promises us that when we bring our petitions we lay aside, tear off our anxiety and our worry, and we take those petitions instead, and we lay them at God's feet. That peace, that perfect peace, that peace that knows everything, is everywhere, and has power over all circumstances and situations, that peace guards your heart and your mind. That's pretty cool. That is standing, that peace, God's peace, is standing at the door of your heart and your mind and protecting you, watching over you, guarding you, if you know Christ this morning. 
That's the peace. That's the power. That's the reminder that God is near. These past few months, it's become obvious that many of us are walking through these times of life where life fakes hard to the left and begins to have a nosedive. And you have demonstrated this in a very inspirational and biblical way. My prayer is that all of us, myself included, would follow your example and allow God's perfect peace to guard our hearts and guard our minds in every circumstance, in every situation, so that we would be able to rejoice no matter what. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your peace. I pray that we be known for our ability, and not the ability that we have in and of ourselves, but the ability that is given to us through a relationship with the Father to rejoice in every situation, every circumstance. That is the result of grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Will not see my